Welcome to Inspiring Philosophy, the audio format of the powerful apologetic videos from Inspiring Philosophy Ministries. Please consider supporting Inspiring Philosophy on Patreon to get early access to videos, live Q&As, and to help build the largest apologetic library on the internet. Now, let's get started with the show. All right, welcome everyone. This is a uh, highly, highly requested interview. Uh, when I started doing interviews on my channel, I got multiple requests to have Tom Holland on. Uh, so I contacted Marvel Studios and they wouldn't get back to me. So I got uh, an even better Tom Holland to join us, the historian Tom Holland. Tom, how are you doing today? Thanks for joining us. Very well. I can't believe you made that joke. <laughs> well, I think I have a right to because I also share a name with a famous person. There was a rapper about 20 years ago named Mike Jones who had a one-hit wonder. And so yeah. every now and then I'm randomly like in a checkout line. And so I hands on my credit card and they're like, Oh, Mike Jones. I'm like, Oh God. Here we go yeah. Again. But he's not, see, he's not Spider-Man, is he? I mean, it's not no. really comfortable. The, and the Spider-Man joke was funny. Maybe the first 30,000 times. But it's... Yeah. Ah, it's just... I hate I get it. <laughs> I get it. And you, you were first. So you got your name on. I was first. Comes yes, after. Exactly. exactly. Not here at all. When yeah. I have quoted you on TikTok, I put some of like your quotes in some of my TikTok videos. I've had to actually imagine put your picture. <laughs> yes, I've had to put your picture and then below, not <laughs> Spider-Man Tom Holland, because people actually think I was quoting the actor. Well, bless them. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us. Tell us about yourself, your background, uh, what you specialize in. Uh, well, as people could probably tell, I am uh, British. So I'm sitting here in London. Um, I am a writer. I focus on the history of antiquity um, and the early Middle Ages. I'm a translator. So uh, I've translated Herodotus, the first great Greek historian. I've got a translation of Suetonius, the biographer of the 12 Caesars, out next year. Um, I co-host a podcast called The Rest is History. Um, what else can I say? Um, I have... Uh, and I have a dinosaur sitting next to me, which is very exciting, <laughs> um, which I bought in an auction. Um, people can maybe see if I move my head. Oh, God, I find this different. Yeah, you can, maybe you can see in the background a mosasaur jaw. Can you see Oh, it? yeah, you see that. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, so, uh, yeah, so um, I, I hope that's a kind of adequate introduction. Yeah, so here's um, a link to your podcast, uh, The Rest is History. I real This is actually a very enjoyable podcast. Uh I, I started listening to when you had a, one of my favorite historians on Ronald Hutton. Uh, and oh, yes. It was yes. Very, very good uh, podcast. I've listened to other episodes since then because I just like going into a lot of the uh, historical aspects that you go into. So I encourage anyone, if you really want, you know, if you're a history buff and you want to learn more about history, this is a great, great podcast to, to definitely uh, uh, go through for sure. Um, I see that someone has commented, says he's British, but last name is Holland. Um, again, a common <laughs> error. Uh, Holland actually has nothing to do with uh, with Holland, as in the Netherlands. Um, it's it it comes from the old English meaning high land, and it, apparently it's a hill in the Midlands, the middle of England. Mm -hmm. So that's interesting. Where my, that's where my ancestors came from. So interesting. Well, my ancestors are Irish, Scottish, and Welsh, so I basically just hate myself. <laughs> right? Yes, I'm sure you do. Like Biden. Exactly. No, he never talks about his ancestors from Sussex, I noticed. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is the book I want to we want to talk about because of course this was a um 
quite a bombshell when you dropped it. I remember you got, uh, you were, I saw you basically everywhere after this book came out. Uh, so, I mean, and so that encouraged me to pick it up. I saw um, uh, you get interviewed by Tim O'Neill on the channel History for Atheists, and I love his work. So I, uh, anytime he tends to recommend a book, I tend to go out and try to get it. And so that's when I picked up your book, and it was phenomenal. Dominion, how the Christian revolution remade the world. So talk about what led you to write this book. Um, what is it generally about? Just give us a, a good overview before we go into specifics. Uh, well, I mentioned how the, the books that I've written have been on um, uh, classical themes. So I, I wrote um, uh, a couple of books on the history of um, the, the fall of the Roman Republic. So that's the age of Julius Caesar and so on. Um, and then the uh, I, the period um, of where the where Rome was ruled by Augustus and his dynasty up to the death of Nero. Uh, I also wrote about um, the the Greek uh, war against um, the Persians in the fifth century BC, and this was a reflection of the fact that as a child these were my obsessions. I loved the Greeks, I loved the Romans, um, and although I read the Bible with great passion as well, I lo basically I loved anything that was kind of ancient. Um, I found that emotionally, and I, I'm appalled to say this, I was very much on the side of the, the kind of ancient superpowers. So I was very much with, you know, pro-Pharaoh, pro-Nebuchadnezzar, pro-Pontius Pilate. <laughs> um, and I kind of identified with Greece and Rome. And if you'd asked me where did my values come from, my ethics and so on, I would have said Greece and Rome. Um, but I, I, basically... The experience of writing about a Caesar who, who, when he conquered Gaul, slaughtered a million Gauls, it said, enslaved another million, and everyone in Rome went, hurrah for that. That's great. Fabulous. Uh, or, or Sparta, Leonidas, the king who, who died at Thermopylae, um, hero of 300, if you've seen the film. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, he... <laughs> The Spartan, the entire Spartan um, state was founded on the systematic exploitation of a, a conquered neighboring city and actually provided the inspiration for for what the Nazis did in occupied Eastern Europe. Um, and so I, I, <laughs> I began to question the degree to which actually these were kind of morally speaking, ethically speaking, my ancestors, um, my, my progenitors. But it was more than that. It was also the experience of trying to write about these ancient peoples in English, a, a language that I began to realize was inadequate to express all kinds of concepts and, and, and casts of mind that the Greeks and the Romans had had. And when I kind of analyzed this more closely, I realized that again and again, the issue was basically Christianity, that, that Christianity had so kind of saturated uh, the meaning of words in English that it was incredibly difficult often to use them mm. and get back to um, a pre-Christian world. And so I became increasingly um, kind of interested in the degree to which things that I had rather taken for granted things that I had assumed were essentially human nature or just the way that societies organize themselves, um, that actually they weren't at all, that they were culturally contingent and the culture that they derived from was, was, was Christianity. And so I wrote Dominion essentially to explore that thesis and to see, essentially to stress test it, to see whether th this kind of, feeling I increasingly had that so much that um, people in the West and particularly perhaps those who would 
count themselves as agnostic or indeed positively hostile to religion and perhaps Christianity in particular, that actually even even being opposed to Christianity has Christian roots. I mean, this was these were the <laughs> suspicions that I was coming to, um, and so I wrote Dominion basically to see whether whether that those hunches were correct, whether that thesis could be elaborated, and whether the threads that that I increasingly felt could be traced from antiquity right the way into the present, whether that was actually possible. Um, and I'm delighted to report that 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 I discovered that you could. So otherwise, I wouldn't have written the book. <laughs> yeah, so I do want to talk about some specifics uh, when you get into that. Uh, but you, I like how you sort of say at the end of your book, uh, towards the end, I believe in the last chapter, you say secularism owes its existence to the medieval papacy. Humanism derives ultimately from the claims made in the Bible that humans are made in God's image, that the son died equally for everyone, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Repeatedly, like a great earthquake, Christianity has sent reverberations across the world. Uh, and I mean, like a lot of us tended to feel like that was the case. Like you mentioned that the ancient Romans and the Greeks were very different in how they looked at humans yeah. and values. And it just, it was really nice to see that said by a historian. Like that's kind of what we also thought. So I, this is why I really right. enjoy the book. Cause it seemed like it was just so obvious from my layman understanding of history. So I, I, writing the book, I had two contradictory emotions. One was, um, goodness, uh, is this really the case? Uh, you know, all my humanist friends are, are going to be very put out by all this, <laughs> by this. And then uh, and then there are other times where I thought, but this is obvious, isn't it? Isn't this what everybody thinks? And actually the reaction, the reaction of people has been, to, it is not what people think. Lots and lots of people think that, say, secularism or humanism or whatever are, you know, have nothing to do with Christianity, indeed are often opposed to Christianity. Um, so I think that that there absolutely is a case to be made, you know, that, that that needs arguing. And I would go so far as to say that that atheism, as um, it has expressed itself, certainly in Western countries over the past 200 years, is very, very Christian in its impulse. Um, mm. I would say that some, you know, a figure like Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens or Daniel Dennett, you know, the horsemen of the apocalypse or whatever they were called, that these are actually very, very Christian figures. It's impossible to imagine them outside a Christian culture. And I would I'd go further and say, actually, a Protestant culture. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I do see that. I do see a lot of um, modern day atheists talking in almost religious terms about uh, yeah. trying to enlighten people, bring people into the light. And yes. I, after reading your book, I can totally see where their, their language is coming from. But I want to ask you this question. Do historians, um, after you wrote the book, do they, they generally agree with your conclusions of the influence of Christianity has had on modern Western civilization? Um, and are there any other similar books along the same thread, this same line of thinking? Uh, that's a very good question. I, I mean, I think you'd have to ask them. I mean, I'm sure most haven't read it. So, um, but, but, but I had, a, um, I, so the, um, the, the episode list of the rest is history that you flashed up, um, showed three episodes on what are misnamed the Cathars. Um, and I was, I was writing today to a historian called R.I. Moore, who wrote a book called The European Revolution, and then uh, um, a book called The War, is Heresy, uh, the War on Heresy, about the ages, um, and, and specifically the way that heresy evolved and, and, and what it actually was. Um, and 
I, I sent him the episodes and he listened to them and he wrote back and, and um, was very pleased basically because I, I'd drawn heavily on, on his work. But he said, uh, I'm going to go back and, and reread Dominion and consider whether I agree with you on the Enlightenment. So, mm-hmm. so I, <laughs> I, I don't think it's been 100% accepted, but equally I don't think it's been 100% rejected. Yeah, I, I, I've definitely have, seen that. Have it, sure. To have a historian of, of uh, Bob Moore's stature say, you know, I, I will go back and, and mm-hmm. consider, contemplate what you're arguing. I mean, that's, 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 that's wonderful. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's absolutely a good endorsement. And again, any, anywhere I've seen this book and talked about by historians, it's generally like this is phenomenal work. This is this is top tier uh, history. Uh, which is why I've cited it numerous times. Um, if, you know, if, if, and again, if Tim O'Neill and history for atheists is going to recommend it, it's probably a good book in my view. So uh, well, that's, he, that's uh, I statement. mean, he is a, he is an exacting critic. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Exactly. I don't think I've ever met anyone who tolerates fools less gladly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you should see some TikTok stuff, but uh, I digress. Yeah. Uh, well, let's talk about some ways that Christianity has shaped Western values. Uh, what was the world like before Christianity? What values did the average person prize? And what did Christians do to, what did Christianity do that made people start to think differently? We can talk about that more generally. And then we can go into some specifics like um, about patriarchy and slavery. But what are some general ways that Christianity helped to shape values? I, I think there's almost, uh, so, so when I began it, the, the obvious ones that people think are questions around morality and ethics. Um, but I, th- I think that, that that actually it's in the dimensions that you might be most tempted to think are kind of universal. That And it turns out not to be at all. So the way that um, functioning of sexuality, the way that we understand sexuality, for instance, um, the way that traditionally in the West we have structured marriage, um, the way that uh, we understand society. So you mentioned the, the, the notion of the secular uh, at, at the head of the program. Um, I think that that it's very easy for people in the West to assume that the concept of there being something called the secular and there being things called religion are just kind of self-evident. It's like saying, you know, there are there are trees and there are cows. It's just the way of the world. But it isn't at all. It's a very distinctive uh, way of comprehending society and how it functions um, that, that essentially had not been conceptualized before Christians in the West did it. Um, and I think that you can see the strains that that has imposed on non-Christian societies in the way that, say, it's operating in countries like India or Turkey. So, I mean, just to expand on that, um, the idea that the world can be divided into twin dimensions, what we call the secular and the re- and religion, um, this is something that that the, the tiny acorn from which that oak grow from which that oak tree grows is um, the famous story of of um, Christ being asked, "Should we pay taxes to Caesar?" Mm-hmm. And he asks for a coin. And he's given a coin and then he says, whose head is this on the coin? And they say Caesar. And so he says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and render unto God what is God's. But but what gives it its peculiarly kind of philosophical heft is actually the, the fall of the empire in the West in the late fourth and fifth century. And the person who really channels that is the, the great father of the Latin church, Augustine, um, who is asked by people hostile to Christianity who who cleave to the old ways, the old gods. And they say, look, everything is going wrong. Everything's going tits up. 
Rome is imploding, the city's being sacked, our provinces are falling to pieces. This is obviously because we have ceased to uh, to, to pay the gods the dues that they were owed. What what the Romans called the religiones, the bonds that join them to the gods. So they could be sacrifices, they could be feast days, um, they could be. Uh, you know the, the rituals that that for centuries and centuries had governed the relationship of um, of the Roman state to the to the dimension of the supernatural, and all of these have now been abandoned. And Augustine turns around and says, "No, not at all, um, because actually Rome isn't really very important. It has no um, divinely ordained function, has no divinely ordained role, because it is part of the fallen world. Everything that is on the fallen world is bound upon." The dimension of the cyclum, by which he meant the span of living memory. So things are, are born, they live, and they die, and then they're swept away on the great currents of 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 time of the cyclum. And if that's true of individual human beings, then it's true of cities, and it's true of empires. And that is why Rome, as well, will fall. And there is only one thing that can redeem humans um, in the fallen world, and that is the religio, the single religio, the single bond that joins man to the radiant eternity of heaven. And that, that religion, of course, is, is the church. Um, mm. It's only through the church that one can, can be saved. Um, and that sets up in, in, the, um, in the Latin West, this kind of crucial sense of a division of there being these two dimensions. And what happens in the, t- in the 11th century and through the high middle ages is that this becomes institutionalized and provides a kind of a focus for uh, what R.I. Moore, who I just mentioned, the great historian of the Middle Ages, calls Europe's first revolution. And essentially that involves um, people in the, the commanding heights of the church, and particularly in Rome, um, saying that we have to baptize the whole of the whole of Christendom. We have to redeem the, the church in particular, which is providing this religio, this bond for the Christian people to heaven. It has to be washed clean of anything that smacks of the cyclum. And so that means earthly control by kings and emperors. You know, they have mm-hmm. to be humbled and humiliated. Um, new institutions are constructed and evolve to, to provide legal frameworks that can structure the, the, the law of this um, uh, revolutionary new institution. And these are these are universities. Um Shock troops are sent out to um, to impose an understanding of this order at the point of a sword. This is what gives us crusades and religiously sanctioned violence. Um, those who oppose this are branded as heretics. And so you see that the medieval church and, and medieval Europe, which conventionally is seen as a kind of hidebound reactionary um, uh, period of, of of western history is not at all it's a it's a it's a vibrantly often violently revolutionary movement and it, it serves to institutionalize in the west in a way that that nowhere else no other civilization had ever done the sense of there being these two dimensions and going into the reformation and into the mod, into modernity what in latin are called the cyclum and religio come to be called say in english um the secular and the religious and when for instance, the British go to India and they look around them and they say, well, what, you know, what, what is the religion of, of the Indians or the Hindus, as they call them? And so they start to construct something called Hinduism, which is not a word in any Indian language. It's, <laughs> it's the British who invent the idea of there being something called mm. Hinduism. And because English is, is used as the, 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 uh, the, the language of government and education in British India, 
uh, it means that the Indian elites start to think like that as well. They absorb these understandings. And when the British leave and a, a republic is proclaimed in independent India, it's defined as a secular republic. Mm -hmm. And that idea of India being secular is something that is written into the constitution. But India today, that is a concept that is coming under increasing strain because um, the BJP led by Narendra Modi, the prime minister, they, they're committed to the notion of something that they call Hindutva, the idea that Hinduism isn't a religion in the way mm -hmm. that, that people in the Christian West understand it. it, it there isn't even something called Hinduism. There is mm -hmm. simply the way, the primordial way of being Indian. And it's something that joins the, the supernatural and the natural, the heavenly and the earthly, uh, the divine and, and, and the mortal in a kind of, uh, it, it saturates the entirety of human existence. And that is an understanding that has no place for the Western concept of the secular. And so that's why the, the incredible strains in India at the moment. And you see something very similar in, um, in Turkey, where um, Ataturk, at, when the Ottoman Empire collapsed, um, he, he, he kind of adopted the idea that of, of, of laicite from you know, the French idea of secularism as being something neutral, but it's not neutral at all. It's mm -hmm. a very, very Western idea that would, again, you know, be unthinkable without this kind of lineage from Christianity. And so that's why, um, to symbolize his attack on this, Erdogan, President Erdogan of Turkey, um, turned uh, Hagia Sophia, the great Byzantine cathedral, which had been turned by Ataturk into a museum, as a kind of emblem of the supposed neutrality of, of the secular order that he was setting up, Erdogan has turned it back into a mosque, which it had become after the ah. conquest of Constantinople. And so I think what, what, what people in the West are starting to wake up to is the, it, you know, these notions of there being religions and the secular that, that, that we may be tempted to assume is just the way things are. Not so. Not so. Mm -hmm. These are very, very culturally contingent ways. And the more that Western power retreats, the more that uh, we start to enter a culturally multipolar world, so the more I think we are going to, in the West, in, in the United States, in America, uh, and in Western Europe, we're going to be brought home, it's going to be brought home to us, the degree to which things that we took for granted are actually the product of our history, and specifically of Christian history, I think. Yeah, that was beautifully put. I really appreciate you going into the details, the whole rise of secularism. Uh, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about something else you talk in your book. I'm going to quote... From one of my favorite quotes in the whole book, uh, you talk about how Christianity really started to reshape the ancient family structure and step on the teals of patriarchy by allowing more romance and women to marry who they wanted. So you say priests were authorized to join couples without the knowledge of their parents or even their permission. It was consent, not coercion, that constituted the only proper foundation of a marriage. The church, by pledging itself to this conviction and putting into law, was treading on the toes of patriarchs everywhere. The rights of the individual were coming to trump those of the family. God's authority was being identified not with the venerable authority of the father to impose his will on his children, but with an altogether more subversive principle, freedom of choice. So let's, let's expand upon this. You talk about secularism a little bit, but you also in your book talk about other ways Christianity influenced, uh, like old, old, overturning old patriarchal norms, letting women choose who they wanted to marry and bringing up this idea of freedom of choice. Can you go into more of that? 
Well, again, I mean, it's it's complicated and it's deeply rooted and it, it, it goes right the way back to the very beginnings of Christianity. Um, and the earliest texts we have that are, that are Christian are, of course, the letters of Paul. And when Paul writes to, say, the Corinthians, the, the Corinth, although it's based in Greek, is, is a Roman colony. It's been founded there by, by Julius Caesar. Um, so he's writing to people who are culturally Roman. And so all the stuff that he's writing about sexuality and about um the organization of the family whether he's writing to the corinthians or whether he's writing to the romans he is having to factor in assumptions about sexuality and the family that romans take for granted and those assumptions are profoundly profoundly different to assumptions that we have today so the romans like most peoples in most periods of history in most corners of the world the, the familiar is not what we would you know, it's not the nuclear family that is familiar to um, viewers of American sitcoms and so on. It is it is a, a much broader thing. It, it involves cousins. It involves uncles. It's essentially a clan. It's a familiar in the kind of soprano sense, perhaps, if you want to put it like that. Um, mm -hmm. And in, in Rome, the the head, the, the, the father, he is is the head of of a familiar. And that means that he has powers of life and death over his his children but also over um, all his dependents, which would, of course, include slaves. And the, what, one, of the, the, one of the expressions of this is how the Romans understand the sexual dynamic. So for us, the sexual dynamic is, uh, is centered in uh, gender, in the idea that there are two sexes. Um, I mean, I know that it's slightly coming under threat at the moment. You'll know more than that. <laughs> than me being on TikTok. But 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 essentially that is that is how we frame it. Um and for the Romans this this was not the case. Um so in, in Suetonius his bio, his his he, the biography of the Caesars, Suetonius notes of Claudius, the Emperor Claudius, that he was only attracted to women. And he notes of Gal the Emperor Galba, he was only attracted to men. And he notes this as a kind of interesting foible. It's not what defines them sexually. It's rather, as we would say, you know, of a man, he's only attracted to blondes or he's only attracted to brunettes. It's interesting. It's something worth mm -hmm. noting. But but it, it's not whether you're attracted to brunettes or blondes isn't the kind of the, you know, it's not the binary that that governs how we understand sexuality. For the Romans, what governs their understanding of sexuality is whether you are a, a, a free citizen or with, and therefore you can do what you like to your dependents and to anyone else if they if they are not free, or whether you are someone who has to has to submit to the um, the 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 thrustings of of the uh, of 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 the free citizen. And in that context, within the household, it doesn't matter whether you are an adult or a child, whether you are male or female. Uh, which orifice is being penetrated. I mean, it makes no difference, really. The, 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 the head of the household can do whatever he likes. And, mm. and that to us seems, to, you know, unspeakably brutal. I mean, hideous. To us, it seems a kind of license for domestic rape. I mean, it is a license mm -hmm. for domestic rape. You think of the Greek gods, the Roman gods. I mean, they're all, that's all they're doing. And, and, and it's, it's a very, very different way of understanding the world. Sexual morality is, it seems very alien and frightening to us, I think. Now, this is the world that Paul is writing to. These are the, the these are the people who he is writing to in his letters, and essentially he is saying, say to a, a Roman householder who has decided to um, accept Christ, 
well, you can't go around <laughs> raping the scullery mate anymore, <laughs> you know, because that's not acceptable. And if you have to have sex, then you have to model yourself on Christ and Christ's relationship to the church, which means by extension that you have to be monogamous and that mm -hmm. that monogamous relationship has to be lifelong because that is the model of Christ's relationship to the church. You know, Christ doesn't go around divorcing the church so he can get, or, you know, betraying the church by running off with someone else. That's unconscionable. And so that imposes on people who become Christian an unbelievably strict understanding of marriage. I mean, it's strict both by the standards of Romans, uh, who, who are divorcing, you know, always divorcing left, right and centre, uh, and on, on, on Jews as well. You know, they can have various wives mm -hmm. this idea that, that that marriage should be um monogamous it should be uh, lifelong and that um there should be no scope for it for the kind of uh family-based rape that that had been part of roman households this takes a, a long time for mm. Christ, christian authorities christian leaders to impose on society for understandable reasons, because revolutions in sexual assumptions are very, very hard to push through. Um, and they're running counter to things that are pretty fundamental and basic to, 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 to the way that men in particular tend to understand sexuality. The way that the church going into the Middle Ages tries to patrol this is to break the power of the, the patriarch, the clan leader, to to do what he wants to with his children so to marry off you know a daughter to a cousin or whatever um and and the reason for doing this is that if christ christ has chosen to marry his church then a man has to have you know he has free will when it comes to choosing who he wants to marry and likewise for the woman the church chooses christ so the the a woman has to be free to choose a man and so over the course of the middle ages um simultaneously what the church is doing is imposing an understanding of of what is permissible in law for people to marry so that's why in english we have in-laws the mm. you know your father-in-law your mother-in-law they're in law because they have been licensed to be permissible by the standards of the church um mm. you know it's not incestuous church councils are obsessed with defining incest at some points it's kind of seven degrees of separation so really yeah. really you know very 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 stern and this breaks up the power of the clan it, it it but more than that it kind of brings in the notion of romantic love as something that um should be the basis for a relationship and in a way the classic kind of illustration of what this means in practice is romeo and juliet um mm -hmm. even though shakespeare is writing as protestant you know he's setting it in in verona which is a catholic country and you have the, the the Montagues and the Capulets are the embodiments of the old Roman understanding of the familiar. You know, they Juliet has to marry who her father wants her to marry, but she's in love with Romeo. And so who is it that facilitates their marriage? It's the friar. Mm. And that is that. And that is uh, the fact that Shakespeare is a Protestant doesn't stop him from 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 from, from kind of recognizing that 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 actually there's a kind of commonality between Catholic and Protestant um, uh, countries because all of them are the heir to this single understanding of what marriage and what love should be. Yeah, I'm I'm really glad you went into that because I was just getting in a TikTok uh, 
back and forth with a Muslim who was trying to argue that polygamy is permissible in Christianity. And I was like, no, it isn't. Like, it no, it absolutely isn't. It, it, no, it really isn't. And Muslims in the, the Middle Ages are, I mean, they, they, they regard it as unbelievably weird. It's one of the <laughs> things about, Chris, about Christians that they find very, very kind of weird and odd. Mm. Um, and, and actually, the reason that, that Jews now tend to have kind of monogamous relationships, monogamous ideal of marriage, is, is it reflects the influence of Christianity over the course of the Middle Ages. So I think by about the 10th and 11th centuries, Jews living in Europe are starting to practice monogamy in the Christian way. Interesting. Well, let's uh, talk about another aspect, speaking of Islam a little bit. You wrote in the book, in Morocco, mission, mission, missionaries from the British abolitionists continued to be swatted aside. This isn't a Muslim country. In 1844, the governor of an island off the Moroccan coast flatly informed one of them that any ban on slavery would be, would be against our religion, which was Islam. You talked about how Christianity was really crucial for fighting and ending slavery. Uh, go into more of that, because I hear a lot of uh, atheists today arguing that Christianity is pro-slavery. I'm like, well, not according to the history. Well, uh, notoriously, there is nothing in the Bible that specifically mm -hmm. condemns slavery as an institution. Mm -hmm. um, Christians seem to have regarded slavery as being akin to hunger or poverty. Uh, it, it's part of the fabric of a fallen world. Uh, it's recognized mm -hmm. as being an evil, but, you know, Eve shouldn't have picked the apple. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's the bottom line. Shouldn't have persuaded mm -hmm. Adam to pick the, to pick the apple. Um, but even in antiquity, there are, um, there are church fathers who start to think through the implications of the fact that um, crucifixion is the fate of a slave, paradigmatically, uh, under Roman law. And so the fact that Christ chose to die that death must mean a kind of sense of identification with the slave. Um, and there's a in the fourth century, there's a, a bishop called Gregory of Nyssa in what, what's Nyssa is a, a town in what's now Turkey. Who kind of draws extrapolates from that perspective, the kind of radical notion that perhaps slavery as an institution is against God's will, that it, that it mm -hmm. should be abolished. And he argues for this. Um, and his brother, Basil, who's also a, a great saint, founder of, of what might rank perhaps as the first hospital. I mean, a man of uh, unimpeachable charity and concern for the poor and the suffering. But he says no, um, because what would happen, you know, if we free slaves, what would happen to them? They'd starve. Um, he, he sees slavery as necessary in a fallen world as a way of providing sustenance for slaves. Mm -hmm. um, and so he that that kind of argument that's advanced by Gregory of Nyssa that slavery as an institution should be abolished isn't one that seems to um, occur to Christians for the, in the first kind of centuries of, of Christianity's existence. And this again and again, you see this with Christianity, that it's kind of like a depth charge, that that it can take time for the reverberations to spill out from the initial kind of shock. And what happens, what, what, what brings abolitionists in the 18th and 19th century to think that, that, that the Christian God wants slavery to be abolished is, I think, a confluence of two circumstances. The first is a, a radically Protestant understanding of how you should read scripture. 
for for Baptists, for Quakers, for the kind of the more radical margins of the of the Protestant Reformation, and particularly in the English speaking um, countries, so Britain and, um, and 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 the North American colonies and the Caribbean, um, where where Baptists and Quakers tend to settle, um, they argue that. Um, it's it's not the words in the Bible that matter. It's it's how the Spirit inspires you to understand them. So unless the Spirit is upon you, unless He has um, uh, you've you've become born again with the Spirit, you cannot properly understand the Bible, and and that opens up obviously for a, a kind of quite a, a, often many cases a kind of radical reinterpretation of what had traditionally been understood that that Scripture was 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 arguing. The other thing that happens is that um, the institution of slavery in the Caribbean and in the and in North America becomes both industrialized and racialized. And the industrialization reflects the fact that um, Britain is becoming the first industrial nation and is just much better than any civilization in history before has been at extracting wealth out of raw material. And slaves are raw material and they are brutalized in a way that even the Marquis de Sade finds impressive. So the Marquis de Sade writes that all the masters of slavery and torture and cruelty were ancient, except for the English settlers in the Caribbean. He says Mm. they really know how to exploit. And the other thing that happens is that um, slavery becomes racialized. And it's very, very difficult for Christians to argue that the racialized enslavement is biblically sanctioned. There are people who try, you know, they 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 quote Noah, the curse of Noah, on mm-hmm. on on Ham, but you know, but it's an enormous strain, and nobody can really believe it because the fundament, you know, one of the funda- most fundamental teachings of Christianity is that all human beings are born equally, you know, are, are created equally in the image of God. And that if there is no Jew or Greek, as Paul says, then there is certainly no black or white. And this is something that the Christian slave owners struggle with. And so it's that that start first. It's the Quakers. Then it's kind of evangelical wings of, of, of um, in, in the uh, Episcopalian church and so on. They, they start to, to, to read scripture in the light of what they're seeing in the plantations and saying that this is an abomination to God and the scale of human suffering on the plantations and the fact that it is racialized brings them to an understanding of scripture that God wants them to abolish slavery mm-hmm. and that slavery is a monstrous sin and punishment will come unless mm-hmm. unless um, reparation is made. And Protestants have the idea of this. Well, I mean, all Christians do. But, but, but Protestants in particular have the idea of the spirit as a fire, a purgative fire. And that is what abolitionist movement seems like. It's like a great fire that once lit just blazes. And it blazes so powerfully that in 1814, when the British Foreign Secretary goes to Vienna to negotiate an end to the Napoleonic Wars, he, he has no choice but to demand that the slave trade be, be, um, be abolished 
to countries that are Catholic, that don't have this Protestant understanding. And so they have to construct um, an explanation and a justification for the abolition of slavery that draws on Catholic tradition, which they can do. There are these traditions. And so the Protestant and Catholic understanding of why slavery should be abolished is fused to create what essentially is the prototype of international law. And it's that that enables British, British you know, Royal Navy ships to um, impound say, Portuguese or Spanish slave ships, even though the sailors of the Royal Navy are Protestant and the slavers on Portuguese or Spanish ships are Catholic. What then happens when the Royal Navy tries to abolish the slave trade in Muslim countries? I mean, that, again, is a huge challenge because essentially British power being what naval power being what it is and French power, they are able to sign a treaty with the um, with the Ottoman Sultan that obliges the Ottoman Empire to start regulating the slave trade as well. And this imposes enormous strains on on Muslim scholars because slavery has always been perfectly legal under Muslim law. And the Muslim understanding of God's will, again, is very different to the Christian one because it's rooted mm -hmm. in, you know, the Sunnah, the, the, the example of the prophet, uh, the Quran even that um, this is written in a way that Christian law traditionally hasn't been. Christian law is written on the heart. You look into your heart, there it's written. Your conscience tells you what's right. That's not the case with Islam. But they essentially, the only way that they can square the demand to abolish the slave trade with their understanding of, of, of what Islam should properly be is basically to Protestantize Islam, which I think is what's mm. happened over the past 200 years, that Islam has been protestantized um which is perhaps uh, you know uh, going off to slight tangent you asked me i've i mean i've been whittering on for, for for minutes and minutes there but but yeah but the process by which chris it's indisputably christianity that about you know that, that that inspires the abolition of the slave trade um but it's complicated it's not simply mm -hmm. a matter of it says in the bible abolish slave trade because it doesn't say that in the bible and yet the inspiration for it is clearly coming from the matrix of Christian scripture and belief and understanding. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I think that's very interesting. And yeah, I'm fine letting you talk because you're just, I love the way you just sort of go and it's very interesting. Yeah, sorry. I'm, it's, no, the it's is, perfectly that, fine. That, that, that it's, it's complicated <laughs> because yeah. the processes of history are complicated. Yeah. And it's not a kind of, I mean, again, you know, so, so much kind of reductive debate kind of revolves around well it says in the bible this no it doesn't it says this that's almost irrelevant it's not entirely mm -hmm. relevant but it's how those have been understood and how the understanding has evolved and mutated over the course of time that explains mm -hmm. how and why things happen i think so what do you think the world would be like i mean we're speculating now but what do you think it would be like if christianity never existed do you think we would have gotten to where we are in terms of technology do you think uh, these values would have come about in other ways i know we're um, speculating but what do you think about that I, I i mean i think i think actually i've i i was in india uh for much of january and whenever i go to india i always think this is a little bit a flavor of what the roman empire might have been like if it hadn't fallen and if christianity had never come about because mm. um pe pe people in india believe and worship in gods, you know, that, that, that reach back to ancient history. But India is also the home to an unbelievably profound philosophical tradition, which perfectly and easily coexists with um, the worship of these ancient gods. 
So perhaps perhaps that's what perhaps that's what the world of the Roman Empire would look, and perhaps Roman sailors would have crossed the Atlantic and set up a an equivalent in uh, in North America. Who knows? I mean, the problem is, is with the, those kind of counterfactuals is that there are so many contingencies in operation that it becomes almost impossible to discuss without kind of spiraling off into science fiction. But I think that mm-hmm. um, what what is what what is striking comparing, say, the ancient Mediterranean to ancient India is how completely the supernatural the world of the ancient supernatural has vanished has gone no one worships these gods anymore um and even you know the philosophy of plato and aristotle they they cut they have structured western thought to the degree that they were absorbed into christian mm-hmm. thinking whereas in in india that's not the case mm. Yeah, I find that very interesting. It's all I think I never thought about it, but I do think India would probably be a pretty good analog to what uh, the world would have been like in the West had Christianity never risen, because you would still have the Roman pantheon and the paganism of the time just evolved in a slightly different way to where we're yeah. at God now. Uh, but do you think a lot of the values that we have now, would they have been there? Do you think a lot of the old Roman norms would still have been around? Uh, well, I, I don't think there's anything inevitable about the um, enshri- the Christian enshrinement of the idea that the last shall be first, which is mm-hmm. a, a very, very radical uh, recalibration of, again, of what seems normative to people. The idea that those who are, who are strong and powerful are strong and powerful because that's what that's the way things are. I mean, again, I was just reading today with reference to India that there's controversy in India at the moment about um, one of the uh, the great poetic renderings of of the story of Rama, um, which is the kind of the great mythic epic in in India, um, and there are all kinds of um, passages in that 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 enshrine the value of Brahmins over untouchables. Um, you know, there are phrases like, "Even if a Brahmin is a crook, he's better than a than an untouchable who's a sage," um, mm. and that, and that seems shocking to our eyes because our eyes have been Christianized and because <laughs> our culture has at its heart, this, a, a God who, who, who suffers the most humiliating fate imaginable. And what having the crucifixion and resurrection at the heart of our culture means is that, um, you know, the cross for the Romans is an emblem of power. It's a, it's an emblem of their power to torture to death those who slaves who rebel against them but what the cross has has come to mean for christians it's an emblem of the opposite it's an emblem of of the fact that the victim will triumph over the victimizer the slave over the master the tortured over the torturer uh Mm -hmm. and the 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 it's the power of that story and that image that underpins that you know that 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 gnomic phrase in the gospels the last shall be first and indeed the, f- mm-hmm. the first shall be last and I, I, again you know, i talked about there being depth charges that depth charge continues to reverberate into the present so you know why do black lives matter because historically in the united states black people were enslaved they've been disadvantaged and so 
the fact that they have been disadvantaged is what means that their lives matter. Mm-hmm. Or why why is why why are trans rights roiling countries of Christian heritage in a way that they're not roiling countries with other heritage? It's <laughs> again, it's because trans campaigners make the case that trans people have historically been kind of persecuted or dumped upon and that in a christian culture gives them credit Mm -hmm. to be a victim becomes a source of privilege yeah i like the way you put that being a victim becomes a source of privilege that that, that definitely is a a very christian idea in its past uh so to moving on we're going to get to super chats here in a minute we got a bunch already but i do want to let people know tom holland has another book coming out uh coming out this year pax War, Peace, and the Roman Golden Age. It should be out in Britain in July and in the U.S. in October. Uh, do you want to tell us what this book is about and uh, how they can get a copy? Yeah, so so it's it's the third in uh, what's currently a trilogy, but I hope in the long run will be an entire history of the, of the Roman Empire. Um, to, oh, that sounds to, amazing. To its, its fall. Um, so the, the first book called Rubicon, is, uh, I, I mentioned, is the one about the fall of the Republic. Um, then dynasty, mm-hmm. dynasty, I should say, um, is uh, is the the, the 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 dynasty, dynasty of uh, of Augustus. Um, this takes the story on from the death of Nero um, up to the, the time of Hadrian. So it covers the year of the four emperors when, in a single year, four emperors scrabble, you know, scrabble after power. Um, it's got uh, the sack of Jerusalem, the burning of the temple. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's got Pompeii. The destruction of Pompeii. It's got the building of the Colosseum, um, Trajan's conquests, um, and Hadrian, as in his wall. Um, so, lots of fun. And the, the Pax Latin for peace is ironic um, <laughs> because there was peace, but it was a peace that was peace for the Romans was quite a kind of an aggressive concept, very much underpinned mm-hmm. <laughs> by violence. So. Some of the themes that I've been talking about today are, are kind of there. I, I, I want to portray the the world of Rome before the coming of Christianity in all its, to our way of thinking, strangeness and and slightly intimidating grandeur. Excellent. All right, let's get to some super chats here. I uh, just want to go through. So thank you, Remote Age, for the super sticker. Much appreciated. Same with Assassin9000. Thank you for the super chat. Uh, here's an interesting question for you, Tom. What are Tom's views about Islam and how Islam shaped the world? Uh, well, I, so I wrote another book called In the Shadow of the Sword um, before I wrote Dominion. Uh, and that was an attempt to answer the question, to what extent was the caliphate when it emerged in the 7th and 8th centuries um, a successor to the Roman and the Persian empires that it had conquered rather than a complete break? And... The book ended up get, uh, and indeed I did a film about it as well, got me into some trouble because <laughs> I, I, I ended up arguing that the, the, the idea on which Islam is founded, that the Quran is, is given to an illiterate prophet in the depths of Arabia, to believe... To believe that, you have to believe that Muhammad was a prophet of God. Mm-hmm. And if you don't believe that, then you're not a Muslim. And if you're not a Muslim, then you have to come up with some other explanation. And it seems to me that Islam is very recognizably 
a, a product of late antiquity, so that the, you mm-hmm. know the, the the final stages of the ancient world. It bears the stamp of the caliphate bears the stamp of of both Persian and Roman imperialism, mm-hmm. and Islam itself bears the stamp of um, this kind of great melting pot, this great petri dish of different re- religious traditions that is current in the Near East in in the sixth and seventh centuries. So there are elements of Christianity, there are elements of rabbinical Judaism, there are elements of Zoroastrianism, um, there are elements of other more obscure faiths and traditions. Um, but what what happens with Islam is that the, the Arab conquests precede the emergence of Islam. Traditionally, the traditional understanding is that Islam is given to Muhammad and this inspires Muslims to conquer a vast empire. I think it's the other way around. I think that Arabs take advantage of the chaos in the Roman and Persian worlds to to, to establish the caliphate. And then mm-hmm. because this is an age where nothing happens without the will of God, they 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 fashion an understanding of how and why God has given them this great empire that over the course of a century or two comes to kind of evolve to become what today we would recognize as Islam. Um, so it's, it's, it's simultaneously bred of the matrix of the Jewish, the Christian, the Roman, the Persian, while also being a very radical break. Interesting. Uh, next super chat here from Sentinel Apologetics. Thank you, uh, Rob, for this. Thoughts on Scottish theologians Thomas Torres's views on how Reformation Europe played a critical role in the scientific method methods development and its achievements by Western science because of it. So first of all, I, 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 I talked right at the beginning about how words in English, I think, are treacherous because we attempted to assume that they embody concepts and understandings, um, significations that are, that are universal and constant. And I think science is an absolutely classic example of this. No word for science existed before the 19th century. I mean, it did, it did, but it didn't have the meaning that it has for us today. So science in 19th century England, even in the middle of the 19th century, could mean the study of Aristotle. The idea of what it is today is basically what, what, what religion isn't. So in a sense, science is the mirror has over the course of the late 19th century into the 20th century came to mean a way of understanding the world that does not depend on revelation or a supernatural understanding of the functioning of the cosmos. So in that sense, it's impossible to imagine science without religion and religion in turn in English is a very Christian understanding. So effectively, it's impossible to have science without Christianity. So in Mm. that sense, I think science absolutely is bred of a specifically Christian culture. But I think that's not quite what the question means. Although, I I mean, I think that 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 kind of digging down to to, to us, what do we mean by science? Where does the word where does the word science come from is is important. But I do think also there is a reason why what we in, by the 19th century in, in English, we're calling science emerges in a Christian context. And that's because um, what, what Christianity gives people is both a God who is all powerful, omnipotent, um, and therefore 
his power permeates the entire cosmos. You know, there is nothing in the cosmos that is not governed by, by his power, by his authority. But at the same time, and this is where Christianity, for instance, differs from Islam, God in the Bible, in the Christian Bible, very clearly is willing to bind himself with a covenant. So there's the first covenant, the covenant that's signed with the children of Israel and, and, and you know, with Abraham and with, then with Moses. But there's also the covenant that's written on the heart that Paul talks about that's somehow tied up with the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. So in the, and in the Middle Ages, this becomes a, this question of what exactly, what's going on with crucifixion? You know, is there some kind of, you know, is there some kind of legal agreement that God has signed with the devil perhaps, or, you know, what's going on there? And as the, the, the philosophers and thinkers in the, in the universities in the middle ages ponder this. So at the t same time, they can't, they, they, they kind of tease out the implications of the idea that God might bind himself to laws by saying, well, you know, he, he, he's God, he can do whatever he likes. I mean, he can, you know, have miracles, whatever, but what that implies is that reason and uh, the idea that there are laws that govern the universe that have been imposed by God and which sometimes God himself submits to. It should be possible because we have reason as human beings created in the image of God. It should be possible for us to access that, to fathom these laws. And so through the Middle Ages, you start to get the idea that you could look at the heavens, you could look at the animals, you could look at light, you could look at sound or whatever and find their manifestations of God's laws and understand the laws. And that going into the early modern period, I mean, that's, that's, what, that, that, that's what Copernicus and Galileo are doing when they look at the cosmos. They, ha mm -hmm. they have the assumption that there are laws that govern how, you know, planets operate or whatever. Because that's what their understanding of God tells them. And mm -hmm. this is absolutely high lit by when the Jesuits go to China. You know, China, incredibly sophisticated, ancient civilization has and, and its entire court system is founded on the idea that, um, you know, say if there are eclipses, the emperor has to do rituals that will appease the anger of the heavens. Um, so the ability to forecast eclipses is obviously incredibly important. And scholars in China, using their understanding of the cosmos, have arrived at ways of doing that. But it turns out that the, the Christian way of doing that is much better. And so the Jesuits turn up and they're absolutely whiz, they're whizzes at, at working out when eclipses are going to be. And they end up being appointed <laughs> to the Chinese court as the people who have to work out the eclipse. And what's very clear is that the only way that Chinese scholars can properly do this is by becoming Christian. So mm. in other words, it's, it's, it, it's not enough to have a kind of abstract understanding of the laws. You have to buy into the whole kind of cosmological and, and, and theodicy, the whole framework of that to understand properly what they're talking about. So I, 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 I absolutely think that, that in that sense, it's absolutely no accident that what we today call science emerges in, in a Christian context. Mm, that's very, very interesting. Um, very generous super chat. I wanted to get to this one. Thoughts on revisionist historians such as Jay Smith 
a level of veracity in the historical claims of the standard narrative. I'm not sure what you mean, Jeff. I appreciate the super uh, chat. That might be Islam. I think I think about Islam. Um, okay. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think that the the traditional narrative of Islam is that there are elements of truth in it, and there are elements that are that are clearly fantastical. Mm. Yes. Yeah. I, I do appreciate the super chat uh, for sure. Uh, next one here. Uh, do you think people before Christianity had a rig, rig, rigid moral systems, even if they were vastly different or what, or was right and wrong more of a subjective matter? I think that every, every human culture has had moral systems. Everybody has a moral system. I think it's hardwired into, into, into the, the way that we comprehend the world. I would go so far as to say the Nazis had a moral system. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the Nazis didn't think they were being evil. They didn't commit genocide and all the horrors they committed for the sake of being evil, for the fun of it, for the pleasure of it. They saw it as a duty because their understanding of race led them to the conclusion that this was the right thing to do for their race. It was a moral system. I mean, to us, it's the embodiment of evil, but it was moral. Communism is a moral system. Um, Roman sexuality was governed by a moral system. Um, there, there, there is no, there is no agglomeration of customs and attitudes and assumption that is not governed, I think, by moral dictates. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, so we're but, but we hour. in the West, but we in the West, we we take for granted, I think, by and large, that our moral system is best. <laughs> of course, because yeah. essentially, it's a Christian moral system. And we're the product of centuries and often thousands of years of, of, of Christian conditioning. So we're about an hour here. Do you, I said we'd go for about an hour. Do you want to, do you have time to finish a couple more of these super chats? Sure. Or do you need to sure. A couple more questions, a couple more questions. Sure. Okay. So we're going to cut off super chats now. Any more coming in after this point, we're not going to uh, answer. Uh, Katie, thank you for the uh, super chat. Uh, here's an interesting question. You don't have to necessarily answer it because it's out of your wheelhouse, but do you agree with Bart Ehrman that miracles such as the resurrection cannot be demonstrated by using the historical methodology. I actually, um, just for Christmas on the rest is history, we did two podcasts on uh, Jesus as a subject of historical inquiry. So we had um, Jesus, the mystery and Jesus, the history. <laughs> and of course we, 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 um, we discussed this very issue. Um, and I think there are two issues from, from the point of view of historian. The first is that um, the methodology of, history as it has been practiced in the west since the enlightenment and and to a degree but beyond that as well is is to discount the supernatural as an explanation for events that happen in history because potentially by explaining everything it, it ends up explaining nothing however that does not mean that you discount um the possibility indeed the likelihood that people back in historical times believed that supernatural events had happened and that and that the impact of that belief can be measured and i would i would say that it is impossible to make sense of the rise of christianity um if christ's followers had not believed that he had indeed risen from the dead and why they might have thought that he had risen from the dead is i think a mystery that defies the ability of historians to explain um it's not a historian's responsibility it's it's kind of not within 
historian's frames of you know uh, it, 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 it it's not what he's what he's about that's for theologians it's for apologists it's for priests it's for uh believers to discuss um which isn't to say that there aren't Christians who are, who, who are historians, but by and large, if they're writing as historians, they won't explain the rise of Christianity as being expressive of the fact that Christ rose from the dead. But they can absolutely say it's expressive of the fact that the first Christians believed that Christ had risen from the dead. And it's perfectly legitimate to say we cannot know why they thought that. They just clearly did. And leave it at that. And I would say that, that, you know, we've been talking about Islam as well. I think there's an analogous mystery in Islam. Because although the history, the, the biography of Muhammad and, and, and the, the traditional explanations for how the Quran came into being um, are, are late and I think clearly uh, unlikely to be historical. What is clear when you look at the sources for the reception of the Quran is that that, that at no point is there any suggestion that these that the, these Quranic verses were viewed as anything other than the word of God. So again, there seems to have been something about the Quran from the beginning that persuaded those who became Muslim that it was indeed a, a divine revelation. Um, I think you have to accept that that's what they thought, because otherwise it's very hard to understand how and why Islam spread in the way that it did. Exactly the same way that I think that the that historians have to accept that there is something very very strange going on in the in the the early hours days weeks months of of the Christian period. Interesting. Uh, let's move on. Uh, do you think it's possible for a secular society to adopt Christian moral values, but not the religion, and still maintain those values? Will it devolve back to Roman standards? Well, this is the great question that Friedrich Nietzsche, the German philosopher, famously asked, and I, I think it's fair to say that um, you know the <laughs> the jury's still out on that. Um, so, on, on the question, will it devolve back to Roman to Roman standards? I mean, a positive answer to that might be uh, in the sixties there was a great repudiation of christian sexual standards um six, 60s was all about sexual liberation the idea that um the, the pre-christian world had been like pepperland and that saint paul had been like a blue meanie kind of wagging his finger ruining it spoiling the party um and if people only kind of got over their christian hang-ups and just let it all hang out free love everything would be great um the, the corollary of that has been, I think, that um, powerful men have come to feel licensed to exploit their inferiors in a way that would have been very familiar to a Roman. So what nobody asked when Harvey Weinstein when that case broke and when he went on trial was to say, well, what was so wrong with what he did? <laughs> Nobody mm. said that everyone accepted that what he was doing was wrong. And I think that that implies that actually we're not ready to kind of to, to return to a Roman sexual morality. Mm. And the weird thing was that again, I, I say this in dominion that 
the Harvey Weinstein thing coincided with um, protests against uh, Trump and um, with the women's marches throughout cities in America. Um, the you know the whole Me Too movement, and one of the most popular costumes worn by protesters on those marches were the red robes and the white um, headdresses of handmaids from the TV adaptation of Margaret Atwood's Handmaid's Tale, which portrayed a kind of nightmarish vision of of a, a Puritan New England kind of reborn in the 21st century. Um, so it was a, a kind of satire on, on on Puritanism. But essentially what they were demanding was that men, men behave like Puritans, mm. that they rein in their sexual desires, that they accept that a woman's body is sacrosanct, you know, has, has mm. an inherent integrity and holiness. Um, so I, th- I think that that kind of beautifully illustrates the tensions and the ambivalences that arise when you hold on to Christian values without, while, while feeling that you are consciously repudiating Christianity itself. I think it throws up all kinds of anomalies and <laughs> malfunctions and glitches in the system. Absolutely. I, I fully agree with you on that. Uh, here's a personal question. Again, you don't have to answer. Is Tom Holland a theist? Uh, do I believe in God? Um, well, uh, I, I would say I'm much more of a Christian than a theist. Um, mm. I, I, I've, I've come to recognize that I'm pretty much completely Christian in my, my values and my assumptions. Uh, the problem I have is believing that there's a God. <laughs> That's, mm. <laughs> you know, which does seem a bit of a deal breaker if you're, if you're a Christian. Um, and, and that's a problem that I've had since I was a child. And, you know, you can see the Mosasaur behind me. I, I was obsessed by dinosaurs and prehistory. And I, I worried about how God fitted into that. Um, there are times where I, I do believe in God. So, you know, if I'm in, pla- you know, thin places, people say, don't they, where I think it's a kind of a, a concept, perhaps particularly in um, Celtic Christianity, the idea that there are places where God seems especially close uh, or times of the year, so Christmas or Easter, I can believe it. But there are other times where I don't at all. And so I, um, I, I have no firm anchoring with that. Sometimes yeah. I believe, uh, most times I don't. I'd like to believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All, all for that. Uh, just wanted to put that out there because it was a super chat. Uh, on preaching the weird stuff, have you encountered weird Christianity or seen it preached recently? Not sure what you mean by weird, but maybe you do, Tom. Oh, uh, because, because this this is <laughs> because I'm very impatient with churches that that assume that um, the way to uh, to, to to preach the message is to make it indistinguishable from what everyone else is saying and this was kind of channeled for me during the pandemic when i whether it was the same in america i don't know but in britain a lot of the uh of the of the churches basically focused on giving public health messages kind of telling us to wear masks and wash our hands and stuff you know excellent messages no doubt but you know everyone else was saying that as well uh and i think that um that, that churches should celebrate what sets them apart. The problem for churches basically is that they've won. So all the things that seemed radical and strange and bizarre to the Romans is now accepted. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of, of what the church has traditionally provided, education, healthcare, or so on, um, you know, charity relief have been nationalized. The state provides that. 
So what is left for the churches to do? And I think what the churches should do is absolutely celebrate all the kind of mad, weird stuff that, um, you know, that you're not getting from departments of health. Um, so angels and God thundering from Mount Sinai and all that kind of thing. Book of Job, all that, all that stuff. Um, the weird, I mean, the, it, I thought the weirdest thing in, in the sense of it sent shivers down my spine and, and opened up vistas of possibility was um, the one exception that proves the rule in terms of churches not, not making sense of the horrors that the world was going through during the pandemic, which was quite mm-hmm. early, early in the lockdown in Rome. The Pope, um, I can't remember what he was doing. He was, it can't have been a mass. He was, it was some, was some observance in St. Peter's Square and it was completely empty, just him in St. Peter's Square. And he 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 made prayers and did whatever he was doing. And as he was doing it, bells were clanging out over Rome and the ha- the wailing of ambulances taking the sick to hospitals. And he went and prayed before an icon that tradition says had been sent from Constantinople in the reign of Gregory the Great, an icon of of, of Christ, the infant Christ and the Virgin. And Gregory the Great, who who was Pope in the sixth century, had become Pope during a period of plague. Um, and he had he 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 his papacy existed in the context of the kind of suffering that we were going through um and he wrote a great commentary on job the book of job which is perhaps the profoundest most troubling most and for that reason i think most satisfying attempt in the bible to explain how a good God can permit evil to happen. I mean, it doesn't give an answer, but it, it mm-hmm. kind of, it, it kind of transcends perhaps the need to have an answer for that. And what, watching that gave me a sense of the unbelievable wealth of the Christian attempt to explain why we, why we are here. Christianity is the most, successful explanation that humanity has ever come up with to explain why we're here and why bad things happen and why good things happen and the whole nexus of it. And that is an unbelievable reservoir for us to draw on. And I felt that very, very strongly writing Dominion. Kind of my eyes were opened up to the the incredible riches in this tradition and i think that that is part of the weirdness moments that enable you to feel that to feel that you're not just you in 2023 that you're part of the totality of the human experience that is perhaps embraced within the the mind of god i mean it's a very very profound feeling i think perfect soundbite right there loved it uh <laughs> uh uh, so you talked about this a little bit earlier. If you want to touch on it more, you can. Are, is Islam influenced by our faith? And it and that's why they are trying to show their faith is peace and tolerant when, in fact, it isn't. Uh, interesting thoughts on that, Super Chat, if you have any. Um, well, I mean, Christianity has, has I mean, it's been unbelievably intolerant in its time. Um, you'll see the last three episodes on the Rest of History podcast is uh, about the Albigensian Crusade. Uh, which mm-hmm. was launched against the Cathars and, you know, blood spilled everywhere. I, I, I think that, that 
both Christianity and Islam are universal faiths. Both both Christians and Muslims feel that their understanding of God is for the whole of humanity and therefore needs to be spread to the limits of the world for, for, for the world's own good. And obviously that, that creates tensions with those people who might not feel the same. And I think that's evident right from the very beginning of Christianity. So, you know, going again back to Paul's comment, you know, there's no Jew or Greek. The, the problem, as Paul himself discovers, is that lots of Jews didn't want to lose their distinctiveness. Um, you know, they wanted to remain Jewish. Mm-hmm. Um, and which is why the relationship of Christianity to to the Jews has always been, you know, it's the oldest kind of darkest strand in Christian history. Um, and the construction of, a, of a, 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 an order in which free you know liberty to to believe and 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 what you want has been has been long and arduous rather in the way that that the road to um the abolition of slavery has been it's 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 been a long and winding road for islam it's it's slightly different because islam unlike you know christianity the the gospels um paul's letters the foundational texts of the new testament are not aware that something called christendom is going to emerge in which there are going to be categories of people called Jews and Muslims and Hindus and whatever. So that's the problem. Um, the Quran is, whoever whoever writes the Quran is aware of it. He's aware that there are mm. Jews. He's aware that there are Christians. He, he's aware that there are pagans. And the Quran prescribes and mandates how these people should be treated, that pagans should not be tolerated, but the Jews and Christians should be tolerated, provided they acknowledge their own inferiority pay and pay a tax. Um, so, you know, would you rather be a Jew in the Middle Ages in Christendom or in the lands of Islam? I think I'd rather be a Jew in the lands of Islam because at least there mm. I'm legally mandated. In Christendom, you know, the rules keep changing because there aren't any rules. Yeah, I think that's a fair response. Uh Thanks to both of you for getting truth and reason out there. So rare on the internet and in the world today. Thank you, Paul, for the uh, super chat. Uh, here is uh, uh, another one. I am a Christian. I agree that welfare and health care were reformed by it. What about uh, Jupiter be, uh, being caring to the poor or Roman welfare laws? What makes those different? Jupiter didn't care for the poor. He didn't He didn't <laughs> give a stuff about the poor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He, he couldn't care less about them. Um, the... the there was um, uh, grain was provided by the emperor to uh, to Roman citizens, um, but that was basically because if he didn't, the whole city would explode. It was a due of citizenship. It wasn't a kind of universal mandate. It wasn't because he felt that the poor should be fed. It was because um, as citizens, they had the. It was felt that it, it came to be accepted that they had the right to to to, to the grain dole, but it mm-hmm. didn't imply any response, any broader res- moral responsibility than that. Interesting. Uh, so final few questions here. Thank you for the super chat. Uh, how revolutionary were, were the Crusades and what are their legacy? Um, the Crusades are revolutionary to the degree that they're expression of this first revolution that I was talking about. The, this revolutionary moment in the 11th century when um, radical reformers um, set medieval Christendom on a wholly new path. And the Crusades are the kind of armed expression of that. Uh, and you see it again and again in similar revolutionary periods. So the um, the religious wars that that uh, characterized 
um, the age of the Reformation, um, the revolutionary wars that characterized the age of the, uh, of the French Revolution, um, the wars that characterized the Russian Revolution. Um, it seems very difficult to have these kind of totalizing revolutions without violence. And the Crusades, in that sense, kind of blazed the path. Mm-hmm. Uh, a related book that doesn't really cover the Crusades, if you're interested, Alex, uh, Myth of Religious Vi- Violence by William Cavanaugh is a good book that kind of talks about uh, religion and violence and wars. And it's a, I've always seen it recommended whenever I talk to various uh, historians in the past. Uh, last question. Do you think without Christianity, people would have come up with their with other systems, beliefs to fill in the steps of progress Christianity solved, or would we be behind? I think the idea of progress is a basically Christian one. Um, so if <laughs> yeah. Christianity didn't exist, we wouldn't have progress. And so we wouldn't worry about it. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. I was actually just reading uh, understandings of time in the ancient world, and they had a more cyclical view of time yes. in yes. the ancient Near East. Absolutely. You know, they didn't yes. look, look at time as like linear progress, but these constant cycles of repeat from the past. Yeah. Uh, as you still get in Asian religions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I'll be doing a video on that in May, just if anyone's interested. Um, all right. Well, I really do appreciate you coming on, Tom. I This was, again, highly anticipated, uh, uh, highly anticipated um, interview that a lot of people wanted. Uh, get Tom's uh, amazing book, Dominion. Uh, again, read it, absorb it. It's uh, really changed my outlook in a lot of ways. Um, and also, you can check out his podcast, The Rest is History. Uh, again, very fun and interesting podcast if you're a history buff. A lot of really cool stuff in here. Uh, so quite a, and quite a lot about, about uh, quite, quite a lot on Christian themes. So um, I, I mentioned the two programs on Jesus. There's also one on crucifixion. Um, a, a lot about Christianity on the podcast. Absolutely. Yeah. So, all right. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Uh, thanks again for joining us, Tom. Uh, pleasure. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, Absolute pleasure. pleasure. And, and thanks, everyone, for joining. Bye-bye. Yes. Bye-bye. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inspiring Philosophy. And a special thanks to the Inspiring Philosophy supporters who made this episode possible. If you enjoyed this episode and want to help the ministry of Inspiring Philosophy continue, prayerfully consider becoming a supporter of this show by visiting patreon.com forward slash inspiring philosophy. That's patreon.com forward slash inspiring philosophy. And if you want to watch Inspiring Philosophy videos, make sure to follow Inspiring Philosophy on YouTube.